These prayer cards are out in the front, and if you want something uh, prayed about in the morning worship service, then we're asking you to fill one of these out. Also, on the back, if it's somebody that's not in our church, especially, uh, number one, get their permission for us to pray for them. That's the first thing. The other thing is the deaconesses send them a prayer card, and it would help if you would put the address of that person that we're praying for on the back so they don't have to hunt it down. So that's just something, part of our ministry that we uh, would like to keep going and let people know we're praying for them. All right, would you please take your copy of the Word of God? I hope you have it with you this morning, and let's turn to Matthew chapter 18, and we're looking at verses 15 to 20, Matthew 18, 15 to 20. I've already mentioned we're going to be talking about church discipline and what that is and what it means, and uh, I, I have a lot to say about that on this passage, so uh, try to hang in there with me. I'll do my best to follow your notes in your bulletin, uh, so if you're taking notes that you can uh, stay where, where you need to be. Let me begin this way. Uh, maybe you've been in a situation, Now we watched one this morning where the lady was saying there's gossip about her, her dad, her dad happened to be the pastor, and it was a whole mess. But perhaps you've been in a situation where you believe that some fellow believer has sinned against you or did something uh, that you think they need to apologize for. Now, that does happen. That happens often uh, between people, and sometimes it happens in the church. Possibly it could be that people have attacked you for things that you believe you're not guilty of, and you're not guilty uh, in the sense that they shouldn't be talking about it or, or questioning you about it. What do you do about those issues where you have a conflict in the church and people aren't getting along very well? Uh, how do you do that? Well, some people have chosen at times uh, to think, well, I'm going to tell my closest friends and I'm going to tell them so they know and they can pray about it and uh, they, can, they can keep it confidential because they're my closest friends. So they tell just their closest friends, not realizing that all of their closest friends also are going to find out as well. So you tell your closest friends, say, keep it yourself. Well, I can tell my closest friend too. And uh, I've actually witnessed that in times. And pretty soon everybody knows uh, because everybody has a close friend somewhere. And so it's all over, all over the congregation. And then you say, well, um, I, I only told them because I want to ask them for advice on how do I handle a problem when there's a conflict with me and somebody else who is a fellow brother or sister in Christ. And then uh, before long, soon, as a matter of fact, the person against whom the grievance is or the, the grievance is with finds out that everybody seems to know about it in the church before he did or she did. So what I would propose to you is this. Is there anything there that I said that you think sounds biblical in handling an issue like that so far? Let me help you with the answer. The answer is no. There's none of that that is biblical in handling how you, how you deal with a situation like that. Uh, it doesn't sound biblical because it isn't biblical. Well, um, the person may ask you, why didn't you come and tell me that you had a grievance against me? And so you can take care of it with, with just me and you instead of spreading it all over the church. Now you're guilty for talking about things you shouldn't have been talking about. And so we have two problems. Years and years ago, so don't try to figure out who it is, okay? We had a couple of ladies in our church that were at each other's throats, and I was hearing from both sides of it, and they wanted us to get involved as elders. I said, you don't want that <laughs> because things can get real serious right away. I said, it'd be better if you two worked it out. But I'll tell you this, if you don't work it out, we will get involved, okay? And guess what? God bless them, they worked it out. And it, was, it, it no longer was a problem. That's the way it ought to be. 
Well, sometimes uh, you re you, you reply when you find people find out you told everybody else or your closest friends that you just needed support and that you needed some wisdom about how do I handle this situation. Well, the good news today is if that ever happens to you, Jesus is going to tell you how to handle that situation and you don't, you don't need to go to other people and ask them the wisdom of how to handle the situation because it's right here on the page for us. Now, I also want you to know this. This is how you handle most situations. There are times when we get past this point where it's already too late and it can't be handled this way. And so we may use the verses out of Titus 3, 10 and 11, and we'll look at those later on. I want you to remember, this is not the only place in the Bible that talks about church discipline. This is just one of many. And uh, we, have a, we have a highly defined uh, you know, set of papers to tell us to guide us through that. Different problems deserve different, different uh, handling, and it's not always going to work this way. And remember that last week we were talking about Jesus would leave the 99 and go after the one erring brother or sister to try to bring them back. And I told you that this passage is going to talk with the people about the people that say, I am not going to repent, I'm not going to fix this problem, and I'm not coming back. What do you do with them? How do you handle them? And we call it church discipline uh, because that's exactly really what's happening here. So how do we handle those in sin, which is what the problem Jesus dealt with last time? They strayed away. This is how you do it. And you don't need to ask other people. You ask Jesus, and here's what he said. So uh, here's, what, here's what it says, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins, now there's a high likelihood that that's going to happen. Anybody here who hasn't sinned for the last week or so? Anybody here hasn't sinned the last day or so? <laughs> Anybody here not sinned this morning yet? Well, maybe only if you're in a coma, <laughs> you know. Uh, sin is a part of our sin nature, and it comes out all the time. We can hurt people without even thinking about it. And uh, it says, if your brother sins. Probably, since your brother's capable of sin, and so are you and I, uh, we should take heed to this. If your brother sins, what do I do? Well, here's what he says to do. Go and show him his fault in private. In private means just you and him, or just you and her, or just whatever the two people are. Go and show him their fault in private. <clears throat> if he or she, I'm going to add there, listens to you, you have won a brother. You have won a sister. Uh, the church is healthier. Relationships are better. And things are going to go along more smoothly. All right, now I added all that. Okay, I'm talking out loud. Verse 16, but if he does not listen to you, if he says you're out to lunch, I didn't do that, it's not a problem, you deserved it, whatever else they might say, uh, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that, and here's why, and he quotes from the Old Testament, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So there's a fact-finding thing going on. If this guy says, this guy hurt me, and we need to find that out, they try to work it out together, they can't. They need to find two or three people to take with them, hopefully as witnesses, and get this thing solved. So we've gone to stage two. There's one more stage left. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Isn't it interesting? The church hasn't started yet in Matthew 18. Jesus is still under the Old Testament. And yet he leaves this particular issue. He says, this is how you handle it. And he uses the word for church. So tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, because Jesus knows the church is coming and they're going to have some issues. All right. So he says, uh, if they don't listen to the church, that's stage three. 
Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. All right? That is a person who has no relationship to the church or to Jesus. That's what a tax collector and a Gentile is, is to be known as in this particular passage. Then Jesus says this, Get our attention truly. I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be, have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two or three of you are gathered on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Please understand this. He's talking about getting together for the purpose of church discipline. This is not to be used, well, we have a Bible study, three years together, let's just ask God for something, he's got to give it to us. This is in church discipline because you're doing something that impacts heaven in church discipline and earth. So uh, what you bind will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been also loosed in heaven. That's real. So if two or three of you agreed on earth about anything, they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered for church discipline together in my name, I am in their midst. Jesus is a part of this matter and a part of this issue. That means there's going to be spiritual issues that are taking place at the hand of Jesus in this issue. All right, so if you're following along in your bulletin, we're going to start in with point number one, verses 15 to 17. And here's, here's the point there. If your brother, and remember, it's not just brothers, it's sisters, or it's brothers and sisters in Christ, or sisters, or whatever it might be. If your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault. And by the way, pray that he listens. Pray that he listens to you. Because the whole point about this passage is people that don't listen when they're in the wrong. People that refuse to listen when they're the ones that did the problem. So in verse 15, there's lots of information in this verse that we need to know. So we know what to do if we're going to do this God's way, the way God intended us to do it. And a big part of the process is confronting sin in another's life. And it's about finding out if this sinner listen to what I'm saying, is really a believer or not. <clears throat> what I'm saying is this. You're going to find out when there's conflict uh, between brothers and sisters or brothers and brothers, whatever it is, you're going to find out some people act a certain way and some people act a completely different way to the point you're going to say some people act in such a way as that's how Jesus would handle this, but Jesus never sins. And this person, this is not how Jesus would handle it, and they did not handle it right, and they did not do the right thing. Chances are they're not even a believer. And so this process kind of is going to bring that out. A true believer will act one way. A religious, a religious unbeliever is going to act a very different way. And that's why in conflict in the church, uh, Paul said uh, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is mostly about communion and and uh, hair length and stuff like that. But he says, you know, in your communion services, you're fighting, there's divisions, this should not be. But then he says in verse 19 of chapter 11, for there must also be, that word must means it is necessary, for there must also be factions or divisions among you. Why? Why, Lord? Why must there be divisions and, and things in the church? And he says, well, here's the reason why. So that those who are approved, approved of what? Approved of being a real Christian, approved of being 
a godly person. Those who are approved may become evident. They're going to be clearly shown among you, and those who don't act like a believer are going to be shown for what they are too, a faker, a religious non-Christian. Because the Lord says if you can't forgive somebody of their sin and you can't ask forgiveness, you pretty much don't belong to him. And that's, that's serious stuff. So a true believer wants to do whatever it takes to heal a wound that he or she has caused in another's life when he or she becomes aware of it. That's what a true believer wants to do. They say things like, tell me what I need to do to make this right. If I need to ask your forgiveness, I am more than willing to do that. And if I, need, if I did it in front of other people, I'll, I'll ask forgiveness from them too. Unbelievers are more interested in looking good at another's expense. So when you confront them, it's a whole different story. They don't want to apologize or make things right. It's not in their nature to do so. And they turn things around and make the offended one look like the offender. Make the offended one look like they're the one that is bad. Or what they often do is they say, how dare you bring that to me and accuse me of saying that? How dare you? Let me just stop a minute and get my pen out and write down a few things that you're doing in your life that's wrong. And then we'll see who's righteous and who isn't. <laughs> uh, true believers, don't, they don't do that. They just say, this is about me. I'll ask forgiveness. I'll take care of it. It's not about you right now. But that happens as well. They, they do that. Well, let's look at your sins. He has the longest list. We assume the person in the church is a true believer. We assume that, and so we handle it the way Jesus outlines for us, and the truth is going to come out. If we are the offended one and we go to the offender and reprove him for his deed, uh, what that means is the word means to express strong disapproval of an action, to reprove or to correct. But sometimes what the one that is offended forgets is what it says in Ephesians 4.15. It says, speaking the truth in love. If you go to give it to this person that hurts you and hope they hurt and hope there's vengeance and revenge, you can turn other people against them and you want to hurt them uh, and you speak to them in a harsh manner in a way that isn't loving, you now are violating the word of God, right? Because it says, speak the truth in love. We must not violate that when we're dealing with these issues. If somebody's offended you, you approach in love, you approach out of, you've been praying about it, and you ask God, would you please help me with this and help the person to be soft. And Lord, if I'm wrong about what I'm accusing, if I'm wrong about what I heard, let me know that too, and I'll, I'll be also the one that apologizes if, if I've got the wrong story. So we have to take all of God's counsel, and if this is going to take place, we need to speak the truth to that person because we love them and because we love Jesus. So if, if he or she listens, and here's the good point, we have won a brother or sister back into fellowship. And we have, if, if that happens, we've acquired someone for brotherliness, for harmony, for fellowship, and for ministry together. There's a lot to gain uh, for doing this Jesus' way. Now, this doesn't say anything about telling your friends first and letting everyone know. It doesn't say, well, I just needed other, other prayer support. Or I just needed advice from somebody else. How do I approach this? It doesn't say anything about that. God seems to think that you as a follower of Christ have enough maturity and enough wisdom that you can do this on your own, and that's how he wants it done. He wants it done privately. The word private is in the text, right? So we want to keep these incidents as private as is possible. 
You know, if somebody else overheard something, you may not be able to help that, but you keep it as private as possible. If the offense was a public one, the offender, when they realize it, they may say, you know what, I want to apologize in front of that Bible study group or in front of those people that were standing there to you to make sure they know we've taken care of this, to make sure they know that we're okay and I've done what I need to do. Uh, this doesn't always have to happen, but we ought to be, if we're the one that offended, we ought to be the one that says, I'm happy to do that. We never need to ask another person, what do I do about this? It says what to do. And so we just do it. Uh, what do I do about this wrong or this hurt that is done is not a question we need to ask them. Jesus says uh, right here, if a brother is sinned, go and show him his fault in private. Don't make a show of it. Don't tell other people of it. And we're often guilty of doing that. Well, in verse 16, if that person does not listen to us, then you take it to two or three other people, preferably the elders of the church, because that's their job. And we would like to think that they're going to keep it private as they can, and they're going to help, and they're going to do it out of love, and they're going to do it for the sake of restoring somebody uh, to fellowship or getting uh, two brothers back together in fellowship. That's the whole goal. And so if you have a situation and you confront a brother or sister and they don't agree with you or they get angry with you and they say, that's not my fault, I didn't do that, how dare you do that, but you think, I, I need to take this the next step up, then you go and he says you tell two or three. And the reason you tell two or three is because you want a witness of what's going on. That's biblical. But I want to remind you what it says in Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. And he's talking to the spiritual leaders of the church. So here would be your elders. That's where you want to go with it. And if they think they need to bring in another witness, then let them do that. Why do I need a witness in this? Why is it that in this uh, confrontation I'm having with my brother or my sister, why, why do I need to bring a witness in? And here's why. And we're going to talk about it here more at length, but I want to get this on the table. We need witnesses because that is the best avenue to go. Now, we talked about that. Let's look at it in Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19. All right, so this is, a, this is a biblical issue. And it says in verse 15, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of, here we, here we go, two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So what do you do if you get in a situation where this person calls and says, I've tried to work it out with brother so-and-so, he won't let me work it out, and so I'm asking you guys to get involved, all right? And we need to understand this. Sometimes, uh, well, let, let me get to that in a minute. Never mind, I got ahead of myself, which I often do. Let's go to John 8, 17. Let's finish that up. John 8, 17. I love to hear pages of Bibles turning out there, by the way. He says, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two or three is true. Jesus is saying he testifies about himself in that uh, particular place. And then 1 Timothy 5.19, 1 Timothy 5.19. And we, we get the, uh, we get the d distinct impression that God thinks uh, witnesses are really good to have when the dispute can't be solved. So in 5.19, he says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. All right, so uh, a, a caution there. 
<clears throat> because church leaders are often targeted by our enemy Satan to be dethroned because if you can if you can get to the elders of a church and mess them up you can mess up the church if you can get them divided or fighting you're going to lose your whole church so it's really important we do it the right way now the witnesses are there also to assess listen if there really has been a wrongdoing between these two people Sometimes uh, somebody comes and makes trouble for somebody else, and they have no right to do it. They're wrong. Well, when you get the two together, and you get to hear both sides of the story, you go, huh, you know, it kind of sounds like you owe them an apology instead of the other way around. So you're there to assess who really has been offended, who really is in the wrong, and sometimes it might be the person that's making the accusation. Uh, the, the witnesses are there to assess, is it really something that is a fault of another person or is it you who brought it up? Maybe we have uh, two people who are both in the wrong and they both need to reconcile. That often happens as well. Or the accuser is really just being malicious and not really caring about the heart of uh, the person they're accusing. Um, our brother Matt Hack just taught uh, in Proverbs eighteen seventeen to our high school young people, this truth from the word of God, a person who presents their case first seems right. That's what the Bible says. Until another comes and examines him. <laughs> that's when things come to light. So the first time you hear something, that seems right. And so you might get on that side, but then somebody comes and asks some other questions that we didn't ask and you say, oh, I'm way off base here. Maybe the accuser is not telling the truth or the whole truth and just wanted to get somebody in trouble. If the truth reveals that the offended is correct and the offender is asked to apologize for his or her action and make things right, then that's what they should do. But if the one who was offended is in the wrong, uh, then there's, there's a problem there with the one who's offended. If the offender won't listen, then it's time to take it to the next level. So we've had these two people together in private the one person said hmm, we need help here so they bring in three two or three of the elders and help them they listen to both sides and they decide yes the one who offended is is in the wrong and they say i don't care what you say i'm not going to listen to you now in our day and age where very few churches do church discipline that person at that point usually just quits the church and leaves and goes somewhere else to me that's like that person saying to god I'm not going to listen to the leadership of the church. I'm not going to listen to the church. And so I'm going to excuse myself from their presence. And I think that person puts themselves under church discipline all on their own from God. Because you can't run from him. You can run to another church where they don't ask questions and why are you here and what's going on and, you know, did you cause trouble where you were? <laughs> you don't usually ask that question, but you find out later, yeah, they just ran somewhere else. So there's nothing you can do about that. Um, <clears throat> I'm getting a little windy, apparently, because my time is running out here. Uh, we would think that a true believer would have repented by now. That's, that's the issue. In verse 17, if the offender has refused to repent, then the issue is brought before the whole church. In, all, in my 29 years here, we've only done that one time because somebody wouldn't listen. And uh, it's not a fun thing. If there is repentance, the offended must forgive and everything stops and fellowship is renewed. Sometimes the offender asks forgiveness. The one that's offended says, no, I'm not going to forgive you. I'll never forgive you. 
And I'm not sure a true Christian can say to somebody, I will never forgive you, because that's not what Jesus did for us. Uh, way back in Leviticus 19, 17 to 18, it says, You shall not hate your fellow countrymen, you can think about church person or believer, in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. That sin would be, I refuse to forgive him after he said, I'm sorry. All right? Now, just because somebody says they're sorry doesn't mean they get to do whatever they want, but you do forgive them. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against your son, the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. So uh, if we don't forgive from the heart, we're going to have issues with that person because we didn't forgive. So we're going to be full of conflict and rage and bitterness because we didn't forgive from the heart. If we forgive from the heart, uh, then we don't bear a grudge. And the only reason to bear a grudge with anybody is for vengeance, and vengeance belongs to God, not to us. And so if there's uh, anger and vengeance in your heart, it's because you're hanging on to something and not forgiving, and we can't do that. Well, we can. We're not supposed to. Um, I'm getting short on time, but it says in your bulletin there, Luke 17, 3 to 4, gives us the same issue in the New Testament. You can read that later. Our main goal, having said everything we've said, our main goal is restoration and fellowship. And with a lack of repentance before the church, he or she is to be considered as a Gentile or a tax collector. The dictionary, we call it a lexicon of the Greek New Testament, the definition of tax collector says this. The higher officials in those days, usually foreigners, uh, were the tax collectors, but their underlings were, as a rule, taken from the native population, like Matthew, who wrote this book, was a tax collector, a Jew. The prevailing system of tax collection afforded the collector many opportunities to exercise greed and unfairness, hence the tax collectors were particularly hated and despised as a class of people. That's where Matthew found himself prior to Christ, hated by everybody in town because he's a tax collector. He's working for the Romans. He's working for the enemies. And uh, the Lord says then uh, you would treat this person who is not willing to ask forgiveness, not willing to change as a Gentile or a tax collector. And what he means by that as one who has no relationship with the church, no relationship with, with Christ is what he's talking about. So here in verse 19, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped here. Uh, we can also look at 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 6 and see how this worked in the church. Let's do that. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 6. Paul says to the Corinthians, Corinthians had uh, a tremendous amount of, of problems. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you. He means in the church. And immorality of such a kind that doesn't even exist among the Gentiles. We know how that word was just used. That someone has his father's wife. We call that incest. You have become arrogant and have not mourned. Instead, you should be the one who, who the one instead, so that the one who did this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has committed this sin as though I were present. So in the name of the Lord Jesus, when you're assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, Paul says, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul took it to the level of uh, a death. And he says, you guys should have dealt with this. You better deal with it now. Easy to do? No. But they should have done it. You don't let 
wicked yeast get into the lump of Christian dough <laughs> because it, it's going to infect every part of it. So something has to be done. This is where sometimes leaders, excuse me, have to lead. Dr. Turner said, successively rejecting the overtures of a brother or two or three witnesses and the church is tantamount to rejecting Jesus and the Father because they just won't do what Jesus says and what Jesus wants them to do. So this is when the church, dis this is when we enact church discipline at this stage. And the person is no longer part of the fellowship or membership and is removed. And the elders work to restore that person. That's their job. But if they can't be restored, if there's reasons they can't, then we have nothing to do with them. Uh, they're, if they're willing to be restored, we can usually work with somebody, but uh, not always. Most times they are not willing. Uh, and that's where we use often another church discipline uh, verse. It has to be used when things have gone too far to get this other done in, in this way because people aren't listening. In Titus 3, uh, 10 and 11, it says, Reject a factious man, a dissenter, a troublemaker. Reject a factious man after the first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning and is being self-condemned. We have actually used that a few times over the years with somebody trying to get their attention. And sometimes they don't want their attention gotten. So uh, whatever is decided on earth is going to be decided in heaven. And that's point two, 18 to 20. The conclusion in the matter is also the conclusion in heaven with that issue. This is a spiritual thing. So in verse 18, whatever is decided on earth by this group uh, is settled in heaven by the Father, be it the elders with the person who was uh, offended in the first place or be it the church. So whatever is decided on earth by this group is settled in heaven by the Father, means settled meaning accepted by him. To bind meant in this text to forbid something, and to loose means to permit it. And it can also be thought of as forgiving or refusing to forgive uh, in the sense of we cannot restore fellowship. It doesn't mean we don't forgive the person from our heart. Or entrance or exclusion or forgiveness or retention. And I wanted to quote here Dr. Blomberg where he says, the theme of verse 18, the word for anything, pragma is the Greek word, is a term frequently limited to judicial matters. Here, Jesus reiterates the actions of Christian discipline following God's guidelines have God's endorsement. He's right there in the midst of them when they do it. That's where two or three are gathered for that. God is there with them with his strength. So in verse 19, the first part, here is where the symphony is all important. If you agree on earth about anything, you may ask God, and he will do it in this situation. The word for agree in the Greek is the word symphony. We get our word symphony from it. A symphony is an agreement. To be of one mind, it is to be alike. It is similar to uh, that, that, that match, like, like a fine orchestra, symphony and orchestra. So uh, secondly, in verse 19, we need to notice something important here. Christians have so misused this passage, and they say things like, hey, there's three of us here, so whatever we agree we get from God, he'll give it to us. That's not what the context is. We're not talking about just whatever. The context must rule here as, as it is supposed to in every scripture passage, and this is a promise to those who are deciding on binding or loosing in, in this, this issue. It's an issue about church discipline. It is not a promise that every group of believers that gets, to, gets together with God 
God's going to give them everything that they want, and they agree on it, and God will bind it in heaven. That's not what it's about. This is a promise that when people have to get together to do this work of confrontation, the Lord is with them, and with they, and, and what they do is authoritative, not just on earth, but in heaven, and in the courts of heaven and before Jesus Christ. Jesus is in their midst. So don't be cowards and do the work you need to do. Why? Because Jesus is there. But do it right. Do it out of love, not out of any hatred or any animosity. Uh, Work to restore. Speak the truth in love. It's all part of what we have to do, should do. And the goal, as someone has said, and I'm quoting, I I didn't write down who I quoted this from, is rehabilitative, not retributive. That's the goal. But sometimes people don't cooperate. And there's nothing you can do. I can't change another person's heart. Jesus can. Jesus can. That's who we leave it up to. Anyone out for blood in the process simply need not help with this work. Absolutely not. Anyone offended who then refuses to forgive can find him or herself in the same situation with the the elders and the church as the original offender. We had somebody one time that refused to forgive and the person was asking, And that's as wrong, that's as bad as not asking for forgiveness. This is Matthew's instruction, and we want to understand what he wants us to know uh, and practice here. So having said that, there's a number of places, and I mentioned it, uh, about church discipline in the New Testament, and it depends on the case and the trouble at hand and how far it's gone and how far it hasn't gone. And it's necessary then to do our best as well by the Scripture. All right. You might imagine this isn't, isn't the funnest sermon I've ever preached, right? But I'm not here to have fun, are you? <laughs> so our, our applications, all right? Number one, everything, and I'm talking about in our context here, okay? Everything depends on how a person responds to being confronted with truth. Ouch. Everything depends on how a person responds to being confronted with truth. So we have to ask ourselves, how do I... How do I respond when somebody brings up something that I did that's wrong or I didn't say right or I didn't do this or I didn't do that? How do, what goes on in here? Is my first response, oh, yeah, well, I happen to have a list right here of things that you've been doing wrong. Or just say, thank you for telling me that. You're right. And I want to get this right. Wow, that would make everything go really, 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 really smooth. So what kind of a person are you? I told a high school person here a while back, are you worth disciplining? Maybe it was the whole group. Are you the kind of person, we're in Proverbs, are you the kind of person that it, it, it is worth it to set you straight, to discipline you, to put you on the right path? Or are you one of those people that we can talk to, we're blue in the face about what's right, you continue to say, no, I'm not going to do it, and you go the other direction. We want, we want them, we want us to be people that it's worth taking time out of your life to correct us. Secondly, an unrepentant nature in a person reveals an unregenerate heart most of the time. It can be a belligerent Christian that maybe is going to get their act together later on. That's what we want. But most of the time, an unrepentant nature in a person reveals an unregenerated heart. They really don't know Jesus They're acting like the world. Number three, in this situation, work to involve as few people as possible. 
In private means in private. Fourthly, willingness to repent and willingness to forgive are marks of a true believer. And the last one, it is best for everyone in the church if the two involved can just get it worked out together according to this passage in front of us. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but it's best, right? Well, Jesus brought that up, so we preached it, and we learned from it, and we're thankful for it. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we have to go through passages in the Bible that make us a little bit nervous or a little bit uneasy, and that's because we know that every one of us is uh, still a sinner, and every one of us is prone to hurting others, and just pray that we would be open, Lord Jesus, to Uh, doing what you want us to do in those situations sometimes people are falsely accused and we want to protect them as well and so father i pray that you would just be with us and help us to do what the text says to do because we want to be people who do what the bible tells us to do thank you for telling us in jesus name we pray amen